Uh, today, what we're going to continue on in doing is we've been taking this walk with Jesus. Uh, we're calling it the way. Uh, Jesus probably called it that first. But what we're attempting to do is follow the path of what is known as the travel narrative, where Jesus um, picks up his life, in essence, in Galilee, and he takes a three to five day walk through Samaria, through uh, enemy territory, on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so what we've uh, purposed ourselves to do over the coming season is to simply walk with him and then see what it looks like to walk in a hostile place, in a place that may not be friendly to uh, King Jesus. And if we pay attention to what he's doing and how he interacts, maybe it informs just how we interact. And so we have a lot to get to today. I'm going to jump straight into the scripture in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We'll put it up for you so you can read along with us. Scripture says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, calling Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? And so the teacher answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered right. Do this and you will live. But he, the teacher, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among some robbers who stripped him, beat him, and then departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was when he saw him and had compassion. And he went to him and, was bound up, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Teacher of the law answered the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Familiar story for most people, familiar story. If you've been in church at all, uh, this story has probably come up, even if you haven't. The Good Samaritan story is a wildly common story. There's even laws in different municipalities and states called Good Samaritan laws, which is the, the requirement to render aid if you can. So the Good Samaritan language is, is kind of in our culture. And yet I think if we take a, di a different look at it today, what we'll see is there are some things we miss about it and there's some things it wants to teach us today. So we're going to be defending doubt for a minute, and then we're going to sneak in the side door with Jesus before we embrace this exchange he's inviting us into. So the first thing we notice when we read the passage is that there's this teacher of the law. And, and this is not somebody who's attempting to trap Jesus necessarily. We see that a lot when people teach the Good Samaritan. It's often said that someone's trying to trap him or to trick him or to get him to stumble. And probably more likely, he's testing Jesus. This was his role in society. Part of his job as kind of like a religion professor, if you want to think of it that way, was as a new rabbi rolls through town, his job was to authenticate and make him uh, prove his theology to be legit. So it starts out as a pretty normal interaction. And he's just kind of probing into what Jesus thinks about these things. Jesus is in Samaria, which is important as we keep going. Remember, he's in a land of hostility towards Jews. And so what he runs into is this idea that there may be questions of him. There may be doubts of him. There may be skepticism of him and what he's teaching. And I think this matters for us because you and I, when we run into uh, skepticism or doubt when regards, with regards to faith, we often think that that's somehow wrong. 
I'm not allowed to have doubts. I'm not allowed to be skeptical. I'm not allowed to ask questions. I just have to, and that's not true. What we see over and over in scripture is Jesus engages doubt. Jesus engages skepticism. Jesus welcomes it. He actually uses it. If you watch, he uses it to teach his disciples. So the people following him, his students, he says, this is a great question. Let's engage that and see what truth might tumble out. So I would challenge you if you're a skeptic in the room, if you're not sure about the Jesus thing, or maybe you have your own doubts that hide in the shadows of your heart, poke at them, investigate them, ask questions, check the text, see what's true. Part of the reason we've gotten so sideways as modern Christians in our modern culture is that we either uh, reject something out, out, uh, out of hand or we go to a teacher that we uh, ascribe to or believe in and we should believe everything they teach without checking for it ourselves. And so what happens is you have rogue teachers or people with misplaced priorities, politicians and preachers, that misuse faith in order to gain power. And then we wonder how we got offline and we wonder how so many have been deceived. The reality is we've lost our instinct for good doubt. There's good doubt. Skeptics are welcome here because God's truth can handle your skepticism. Because you give skepticism to truth and truth will always stand up to it. So it's why we encourage good questions. It's why we encourage doubt. It's why we encourage people to lean in and go, wait, 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 are you sure? Or how did that happen? Yeah. God's not afraid of doubt. And the presence of doubt does not mean the absence of faith. And it's important for us to, to grab that as believers to say, I don't need to believe 106%. I need to be a believer and, and recognize that the doubt doesn't mean that I lack faith. It means that there's more truth to uncover. So quietly, the teacher is moving from this honest dialogue with Jesus into a place of self-justification. The scripture says, desiring to justify himself, he kind of pivots and switches tracks on Jesus. And the reality is, for someone set on self-justification, there are two great hiding places. Two great hiding places. One is a good religious question. That'll get people off your scent real fast. Ask a good religious question or a non-essential spiritual question. So a good religious question, we had a guy in our uh, college uh, Bible study, kind of our community group. And, and there was four or five of us that were pretty consistent over mul multiple years. And one guy asked the best questions, deep questions, hard questions. And, and he would sit back almost smugly as he asked the question and he watched all of our brains explode. And then we would debate about it for the next hour. And he always had the best questions. Week after week, we'd get together and we all had doubts and we had skepticism and, and we were wrestling through things and we were struggling with life. And he didn't seem to have any of that. He never brought that forward, but he always had incredible religious questions. It seemed it was a smokescreen when a few years later he called us and he said, I, I'm in the hospital and I'm dying and I need someone to come visit me. We had no idea. There's no clue what, what, what could be wrong. What happened? Is there something we don't know? And he had been, in the early days of the internet, seeking uh, what I'm going to call online friendship with lots of different people, with lots of random people. And what he had accumulated over the series of years that we knew him was hundreds of friendships and about a half dozen diseases that all working together were killing him from the inside. That his organs were shutting down as one disease after another started to rack his body. Like he had the deepest of personal struggles and trials, and we never knew it because he was hiding behind these incredible religious questions. The other places that we hide when we're seeking self-justification or we're trying to avoid being found out is we hide behind non-essential spiritual questions. Like, like the religious man says, yes, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
which is a nice four-hour conversation that doesn't really have a right answer. Let's debate that. Let's talk about that. And Jesus is going to redirect him. My favorite part of this whole thing is he goes, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus, looking at the man, said, there was a man who was down on the Jericho Road, and which is the total like, random thing to say. He didn't address this question at all. But we have that in today's world. How many hours do we spend debating masks and debating school policies and debating shutdown orders? Are these stealing our religious liberty? Debate. And you're like, why? There was a man going down to the Jericho Road. Jesus always seems to take these sideline spiritual questions, these big religious smoke screens. Jesus takes these and redirects back to mission, back to the core purpose of our existence. And it's as if, he says, if it doesn't change your mission, it's not worth digging into it. If it isn't going to impact the way that you're living out the Christ life, if it doesn't change the way that you interact as kingdom inhabitants, then what's the point? So the guy says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes, there's a man going down to Jericho. What about my question? We're getting to that. Dr. Henry Cloud said that if we forget why we're on mission, then we're essentially sunk. He was addressing uh, leaders during this whole pandemic. COVID has, has put leaders in a crazy place that, that people who once had a way of doing the thing that they were called to do now can't do it that way. And so every different organization, for-profit businesses, nonprofit, everybody in between, ministries, everybody has had to rethink the way we do everything. All of our methods have changed. But if we remember what our mission is, then we persist no matter what. If we forget, then we get distracted and it's like a gnat buzzing around us and we get off mission because we're busy thinking about the methods. We're busy thinking about the details or these smokescreen questions that come around us. Dr. Cloud says this, if the horse and buggy people had just realized that their mission was not to be in the horse and buggy business, but in the people moving business, Maybe they wouldn't have gone out of business. They would have been the first to go with cars and planes and trains and the rest. But they were in the horse and buggy business. And so when that went away, when people no longer wanted to ride in a cart behind a horse on a smelly street in New York City, their business folded. And they went with it. If record companies had realized they weren't in the record business, the vinyl business, the CD business, the cassette tape business, if they weren't in the record business, but they were in the getting music to people's ears business, maybe they would have beat Steve Jobs to creating iTunes, or then Spotify, and on you go. So as a church, if we think we're in the getting people to gather on Sunday morning for one hour to sing some spiritual songs and hear a message business, then this whole thing has been totally disorienting, and we're failing. But if our, miss if our mission is to make disciples and to heal marriages and mend relationships and love our neighbor then we maintain hope and we press on because we're not getting distracted by the spiritual gnats flying about us. We are in the knowing Jesus and making him known business. And so I can be told I have to wear a mask that doesn't change anything. I can be told we have to socially distance or we have to limit the number of people who could be here on a Sunday. It doesn't change anything. I can be told the building has to be shut down and everybody has to shelter in place. Guess what? It doesn't change anything. They can't take away our ability to love people or cultivate neighbors or display the kingdom of God to everyone we come across. Online, offline, doesn't matter. Our mission doesn't change, and no matter what happens around us, it doesn't change our mission. Jesus has this challenge with the lawyer. He can either keep playing religious whack-a-mole and answering these random spiritual questions, or there was a man going down to Jericho. So a parable is interesting because a parable is a non-religious story, but it has a definite moral background. 
Parables are, uh, Eugene Peterson will say, they're kind of the way into the side door of people's hearts. We meet people on their terms. When we're walking through our Samaria here, we can't talk God language. We can't use God talk. If people want God talk, they come to God's house here, and then I give them all the God talk they want. But when we're out in the street, when we're meeting somebody in their own home, when we're in someone else's space, we use those, the space of the place. We want to engage them where they are. We want to meet them where they are. And so we use parable language. It's a trick in pastoral counseling when someone comes in and they have a particularly difficult problem and they don't know what to do with it. I'll simply recast the problem and I'll say, imagine your best friend. Who's your best friend? They'll tell me. I'll say, imagine this person was dealing. And I'll just give them their exact same problem, but in the eyes of their best friend having it. And I say, what would you tell your best friend to do? And they go, wow, that's easy. They should do this. And you go, okay. Why is it so hard for you? Well, it's not as simple as I made it out to be. Like, is it? Or is it just so much clearer when we see it through somebody else's experience? And that's what a parable does. It takes us just far enough outside of our own story that we can see what truth is, we can see what we need to do, and then when we're popped right back into the story, we go, oh, that was me all along. So Jesus recasts the story at a distance, just far enough away to keep defensiveness at bay. You can't be defensive, that lawyer, the teacher of the law, he can't be defensive if it's not about him. There was a man going down to Jericho. Eugene Peterson would say that the, the, the heart is a heavily guarded and fortified thing for people. Defenses are strong, but the parable is that sneaking in the side door when they're not looking. And before they know it, here we are, and the story was about you all along. So he sets the story in this specific place, a place that's close enough that everybody knew what it was, everybody knew what it stood for, everybody understood what the Jericho Road was. He, he gave a Jewish road with a, a presumably Jewish victim and it's so familiar to everybody there that they can see it in their mind's eye. So it's close enough to be personal, and yet it's far enough away to get around defenses because it isn't about you. And so he takes Jewish leaders and Samaritans, this enemy people, this hostile people, and he recasts them in the story. As enemies, Samaritans would have naturally and normally been cast as the robber and the thief in any Jewish telling of the story because it, we needed to, to reiterate what's already known, the generalization about these people. But not in Jesus' telling. He makes the classic enemy into the hero and he makes the classic heroes, the priest and the Levite, into the failures of the whole thing. Why? Because a parable is, it's a vehicle of reimagining truth. And so the Jewish priest and the Levite, this guy with this special, he's part of a special sect of Judaism who has specific temple responsibilities, kind of a, an exalted people. They both fail. Which is again Jesus reminding us of something. Your affiliations don't earn you God's favor. Being in the right family, having a clean criminal record, straight A's in seminary, being a member at Covenant Church. God doesn't look at that and go, oh, well, with that resume, you get my favor. Jesus is undoing the age-old idea that they're good guys and bad guys based on heritage or race or nationality, based on history or family tradition. Instead, the Samaritan is the hero, and Jesus lays it on extravagant, abundant care and love he shows. And he finishes that by then asking the question, so who proves neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? You see what's happening? Jesus took the lawyer's question, which was, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus snuck in the side door. Jesus forces everyone in the audience to see themselves in the story, and in doing so, he reforms the question from who is my neighbor to will you be a neighbor? 
Jesus takes an esoteric and philosophical question designed to be a smokescreen of religiosity, and he makes it an explicit and practical application. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He's still back in Galilee. He's got this gathering of people. Read it with me. It says, here's another old saying. This is Jesus speaking. Deserves a second look. He says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law that says love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. Jesus says, I am challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. Because this is what God does. He gives his best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless. The good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Do you want a cookie? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. So in a word, Jesus says, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God lives towards you. I read you that because that's Jesus giving the parable of the Good Samaritan, but in direct frontal assault. That's Jesus coming straight at it, going, here is truth, and you're going to deal. And it hits you in the mind first. Well, this is a lot to comprehend. This is a lot of rules changing at once. Okay. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is many of these same principles, but coming in the side door, attacking the heart first, allowing the heart to be the decipherer of truth, and then it makes its way up to the head. Well, then I guess I must and it completes the two. The two are the same thought in different form. What he's saying in both places is that we are in danger as a people. We were then and we are now of emptying the world of neighbors and replacing them with enemies. We are in danger of creating enemies where they don't exist and refusing to make neighbors where we should be. In the process, we're getting really good at winning religious arguments and really good at losing the hearts of the lost. What Jesus is saying over and over is see your enemies as neighbors and then relate to them that way. And you go, well, I don't know that I have enemies. Like no one has got a hit out on me. See enemies of the gospel. See enemies of justice. See enemies of truth. See enemies of mercy. See the enemies, the people who stand against all that is good and right and true. And Make them friends. Make them neighbors. Cultivate them. Bring them along on the journey. Live out your God-created identity as ambassadors. Live generously and graciously the way God lives towards you, Jesus said. Paul says it this way. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus. So how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus speaks about this over and over. Enemies, no such thing. Enemies, no such thing. Enemies, no such thing. 
cultivate them into neighbors, love them and pray for them, bless them. Why? Paul brings it back around and goes, that's because that's what he did. Because while you and I had the stain of sin upon us, while we were yet enemies to the perfection and beauty of Jesus, Jesus thought us worthy to give up his entirety of his life, to lay his entire self down before us, to get on the cross, to take on the pain, to do the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I might be made friends and neighbors of his. So he says, can you live that way? Can you give your life so that those who you might currently count as enemies might one day be called friends? See, Jesus is inviting us to an exchange. There's an exchange taking place. The conquering of enemies for the cultivation of neighbors. Jesus invites us to make an exchange. The old you for the new you. Your life for his life in you. The old way for the new way. While we were enemies, you and I, remember your story beaten and bruised by sin and condemned a certain death on the side of the road. Your habits and your hangups and your hurts, the places where you had failed, the places where you fall short, remember where you were beaten and bruised on the side of the road. While religion, doing some good stuff, knowing the right thing, growing up in the right family, while religion passed you by on the other side of the road, while religion called your habits, while religion called your sin, while religion called your stain unclean and impure and unworthy, while, while the rules went by on the other side of the road, Jesus showed compassion beyond comprehension. Jesus radically and sacrificially gave his life for you. By his wounds we are healed. By his death we are freed. By his resurrection we find life. You and I were the one on the side of the road and Jesus was the good Samaritan to come and call us home. Jesus is the answer to what it looks like to be a neighbor, to love an enemy, and to live out faith. And Jesus showed that he is the true and better good Samaritan. The good Samaritan is not a parable about someone else. The good Samaritan is a sideways sneak in. It's Jesus saying, this is me. And you, wanna, you want your world rocked that the Jewish Messiah, I'm going to compare myself to a Samaritan because I am the true and better Samaritan that while you were beaten and bruised, I gave up everything to see you made well. Jesus risked it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave up everything to see us made whole. And his challenge for us is he sneaks in the side door of your heart today. His word for us as he finishes his story is go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a weightier challenge than we even get in the moment. And Father, as we consider what it means to, to love the unlovable, to give our lives away, to surrender ourselves for the sake of others. Father, the difficulty that is inherent in that call to go and live like you feels burdensome. And yet you said through Jesus that there is no burden with you. Your yoke is easy. But in following you, that we just live through you, that you live in us. And if we can rely on you and your strength, then you'll carry us through. If we look to you and your wisdom, 
It's not ours to bear. If we can look to you and your courage and your bravery and your hope and your grace, that through you, Father, we might go and do likewise. So my prayer for our community, my prayer, Lord, is that you would draw our eyes to you, that you would draw our hearts to you, and that as we find ourselves in you, that you would supply all we need to go and do likewise, to make neighbors, to cultivate friends, to show people the beauty and the grace of wholeness and healing that is only in you. So God, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.